Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Jovan Scott-Lewis, Associate Professor and Chair of Geography at the University of California, Berkeley. We will be talking about his book, Scammer's Yard, The Crime of Black Repair in Jamaica, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Thank you very much, Dr. Lewis, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So at the New Books Network, we like to start our episodes by getting to know our authors. So can you tell us about your interdisciplinary background across anthropology, geography, black studies, and if there's anything else I'm missing? (laughs) Yeah, sure. You know, and it's, you know, I I am a Caribbeanist, right? And I think um, as a Caribbeanist, you you understand your problem as your problems, right, as being inherently interdisciplinary. Um, I was trained in anthropology at the London School of Economics, um, but still focusing, you know, on the Caribbean. You know, when you are trying to form questions, right, around the region, you know, it demands, right, attention to, you know, multiple modalities, right, of of inquiry. Um, And because the Caribbean has a very rich history of, of, you know, the production of knowledge, right, um, that takes on so many different forms. So <clears throat> literature, right, art, right, of course, social science, um, you know, and so it, there is a need to kind of pay attention to, to all of that. So, you know, the specific questions of, you know, about the disciplines that you, that you bring up, that you mentioned. So anthropology, so I'm a trained anthropologist, right? Um, I come to geography really by way of my, my, <clears throat> On one hand, you know, the, the, the Caribbean is inherently a, a geographically oriented problem space, right? Um, so, so that is a foundational geographic orientation, you know, around my work. Um, but I also, in terms of the discipline uh, proper, right, that, that comes into being for me around my appointment, you know, as an assistant professor in geography at UC Berkeley um, several years ago. Um, you know, I was hired through um, a, a call here at, at Berkeley to help run an economic disparities research cluster. And as a result, I was able to choose my appointments. And what I chose, right, was a joint appointment at that time between the departments of geography uh, and African-American studies. And I chose geography because there was, at least in our department here, you know, there was an attendance to questions of political economy right, to the questions of development that were a part of this, you know, my department's tradition. Uh, and, and that resonated with me because, you know, they were asking at a department level, or at least they were invested at a department level in the kinds of questions that I was asking. 
Um, and so, you know, for that reason, I felt very comfortable uh, in, you know, UC Berkeley geography uh, because it felt very much like UK, you know, social anthropology. Uh, it felt very much like UK, you know, geography. Uh, you know, and so black studies, you know, black studies, again, is this foundational, you know, like Caribbean studies, um, you know, black studies is a foundational epistemological commitment that I have. Right? And this is way before I, you know, began my formal education and my formal training. Uh, so, you know, black studies as uh, an area of inquiry is necessary when you're thinking about Caribbean formation, because it brings up all of the questions that that help us wrestle with, well, what does the Caribbean mean, you know, as a product of racial capitalist modernity, right? What does, right, the Caribbean mean when we think about it as Sid Mintz and others have argued, you know, as one of the initial sites of the, you know, experimentation of, of racialized labor, you know, in, in, in the West, right? So, you know, Black studies has to, you know, has to be a part of, of, of that inquiry. And so, you know, if you're thinking about questions of labor, you're thinking about questions, you know, of social domination, if you're thinking about questions of resistance, you're thinking about questions, you know what I mean, that 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 have really at the heart of it, the 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 inquiry of what it means to be Western and modern, black studies has to be there. And it's important as well to note that really at the heart of black studies is Caribbean studies. That's my that's my that's my position at the very least. Right. So when we're thinking about, you know, so many of the common references that we have. Uh, in contemporary Black studies, whether it's Fanon, whether it's Glissant, whether it's Sylvia Winkle, whether it's Stuart Hall, C.L.R. James, right? You're seeing these are Caribbeanist thinkers. This is Caribbean intellectual thought that, you know, really has set, you know, what we can consider as a contemporary agenda uh, for a, a broader program of, of Black studies. And and so you know this is kind of the disciplinary you know constellation that I that I kind of think uh, from. Wonderful, and it's really helpful to know um, the geographic core of your work. And my next question is about the people who are also at the core of your work. So in Skimmer's Yard, you immediately introduce introduce us to Junior, Dwayne, and Omar, and they're they're so central and they come alive so vividly in your narrative that I got the sense that they're the ones who led you to this project rather than the project leading you to them. So I was wondering if you could speak to how you conceived of this project with them and how they led you to think through the scam. Sure. Well, you know, so that's partly true, but I want to quickly big up my 98-year-old uh, grand-aunt, Auntie Pinky, who <laughs> celebrated her 98th birthday last month because she's the one who actually led me to this project. Wow. Uh, you know, I had gone, I'd gone to Jamaica. I had gone to Jamaica um, to, you know, to do a, a research project generally on the questions of cause separation. And we could talk about that later. Um, but on the question of separation, you know, political economy, you know, in the tourist market of Montego Bay. And I was at home with her one day and we were sitting on the veranda and, you know, it's a perfect, you know, kind of anthropological trope, right? On the veranda, <laughs> um, you know, and there's a guy who walked past the front gate and he sound he sounded quite curious to me. You know, his, his, you know, his voice was nasally. He had a very strange accent. And I said, Auntie Pinky, what's wrong with that man? Why does he sound so, so odd? And he said, oh, my dear, is that one of them scamming them up the road? And I was like, what do you mean you wanted to scam them up the road? And, you know, 
I had known about scamming because scamming, you know, had been a recognized, you know, practice, lottery scamming specifically, um, had been a recognized practice in Jamaica since about 2000, late 2007, 2008, you know, and so this was, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but I hadn't identified it as a specific, you know, area of research for me, right? But then when I got to Jamaica and I was a, and I encountered one of these scammers, you know, by way of Auntie Pinky's recognition on my behalf, you know, it opened up the possibility of of meeting, you know, um, and that guy who passed by was not one of the people who ended up, you know, working with me, but it opened up it opened up um, the possibility. So I have to just give credit where credit is due. Um, that, um, you know, Auntie Pinky, um, you know, uh, Miss Carmen Fostel is, is responsible for Scammer's Yard. Um, so, but yeah, so, you know, I, I talk about, I talk about how I encountered, you know, the, the scammers who I talk about in the book. Um, you know, I, I did research with them as part of a broader project, right? So my dissertation, for example, isn't, so Scammer's Yard is not the dissertation, right? Scammer's Yard comes out of one chapter of the dissertation. And and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about these guys and their practice really as part of a broader set of, of, of inquiries around Jamaica's political economic circumstance. And this is the issue of sufferation. So, you know, what I, I end up doing is, you know, in anthropology, but in fieldwork generally, you know, there's so much, so much serendipity, right, that leads you uh, to your, you know, experiences. And so having met one of these guys, you know, it opened up a pathway for me and it allowed for me to, to ask questions of them, but questions that weren't necessarily just about them. Right. So the questions that I asked of the scammers were questions that I was asking in my fieldwork generally. Right? So in other words, what has produced Jamaican uh, impoverishment? How has that been racialized? Right. What are the histories that have produced it over time? Right. What are Jamaicans doing to reconcile with or to resist or to make life within those circumstances? And these are questions that I ask the scammers. You know, if you look at some of my articles that I that I produce out of dissertation, these are questions that I asked of of Black Jamaican market women. You know, and and I would certainly recommend people go and read, you know, that very first article. I saw Black people stay. It's not a plug, right? But what it is, it's 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 to say, well, those women have a very a very you know important perspective about you know what subjectivities are formed within Jamaican you know Jamaican suffrage. Um, so, you know, what I did was I brought those questions to them. And these were universal enough questions for the Jamaican, you know, the, the racialized, impoverished Jamaican experience that, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily, you know, terribly novel to the lottery scam. In other words, the scam was a response for these young men as market trading was a response, right, for the, 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 the vendors that I worked with in another in another setting. Um, and so that's, you know, and th that's what really drove a lot of the of the thinking and really a lot of the, the politics around the project. for me. Um, so, yeah, it was really about these guys everyday, everyday experience. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, you mentioned suffragation as a concept you work with. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on suffragation and its relationship or tensions with aspiration. Hmm. 
So I, I argue that suffering is a way of recognizing what is a very particular sense of Caribbean but Jamaican ontology. There is there is a recognition that Jamaican political economic development has been arrested ever since emancipation. And that sense of arrest has followed through the various conjunctures of political action and even accomplishment in Jamaica's history. So emancipation, right, independence, you know, these are moments that, you know, should really, you know, have you know, ushered in some kind of new sense of, of liberty. And it did in, in many ways, right? But the circumstances remain the same, at least largely. And so we're talking about, you know, from 1834 straight up to, you know what I mean, the, the 21st century here where, but, so the experience of, of life in Jamaica, um, while taking different forms politically, right, the sense of it hasn't shifted. And so that is, that is an ontological, you know, circumstance. And so sufferation is a, is a framework that, that helps to account for that. Um, you know, the, the idea is, what does it mean to have aspiration? What does it mean to actually have intelligence and to have, you know, sometimes skill, but to be effectively, you know, uh, contextually, conditionally incapable of exercising those talents? You know, it leads to a kind of frustration and leads to a kind of vexation. And these are the terms that I use to kind of help to, to flesh out the, the sensation of suffering. And so that's what, you know, that's what, you know, not just the scammers, but poor Jamaicans are feeling, you know, generally. And I think we could extend that that experience, you know what I mean, to other contexts, even the United States, right? Where, you know, impoverished and especially racialized, impoverished individuals feel as if, you know, the, you know, life is 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 impossible. Um, and so that's the sensation, right? And And to be clear, it's not a form of pessimism, right? I've been asked, you know, several times if if sufferation is is a form of Afro pessimism, and it isn't, right? Because, you know, there is a recognition of one's value, there's a recognition of one's humanity, there's a recognition of one's promise, but the 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 that recognition leads to a, you know, a a critique of the environment, a critique of the structures within which one exists, but not of oneself, right? Um, so even juniors, like, you know, a youth like me, a youth with intelligence, how come I'm not able to, to you know, it is, a, it is, you know, it is, you know, perplexing. This isn't right. I should be able to have anything I want because I know that I have what it takes, right? Um, and so it's a critique of the environment. And, and, and that's why it's, it's really, it's really helpful to understand that. And it's, so it's not a kind of, you know, an impoverishment of the self, right? It is an impoverishment of one's circumstances. And I think that lends itself to a kind of critique of general theories of poverty, which are typically rendered as individuals failing, you know, in a particular system. And the scammers are saying, no, the system is failing us. And we, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's actually how it does work, right? Um but narratively, we don't seem to always recognize that truth. And the scammers, the scammers and sufferation, in turn, help us to, to fully understand the relationality between one's own subjective aspirations and capabilities and the circumstances that one exists within um, and, 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 and how those circumstances actually inhibit um, you know, productivity or accomplishment. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think... It really comes across that um, sufferation also animates the people that you work with um, in this book. 
Um, for example, you show us that transnational geographies of capital also elicit the possibility of repair. For example, when we think about the crew's work in business process outsourcing. Could you tell us more about the discursive and reparative possibilities your collaborator your collaborators create within geographies of capital? Sure. So so thinking back to my definition of of suffering, you know, there there is this recognition that the circumstances prohibit one's own accomplishment and one's development. And and what that l- leads to is contemplation as to why <laughs> right it's not just oh i guess this is just how life is like no 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 what is actually wrong with the system why is the system set against me in this way and what that at least leads the scammers to recognize is that you know the system is by design you know keeping them back it is it there's a requirement for the system's productivity right for capitalism's productivity that they right be rendered you know non productive that they you know be exploited and so you know what that accounts uh, or really amounts to for the scammers is is a form of injury right mm-hmm. and and what that does is is it demands a kind of reparative framework to be to be you know produced in response and so what they do is they recognize that their poverty is intentional right it isn't circumstantial it isn't a failing on their own part but their poverty is structurally intentional right and necessary and so recognizing that as a form of injury right the scammers the scammers indicate that they have to actually you know do what they must in that circumstance and their actions in response you know are nothing more uh are nothing less rather than than reparative acts um you know so what does that mean in terms of the broader geographic issue well that takes us back to you know the the, the new world group plantation school right the work of 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 uh you know economist lloyd best who talked about the relationships uh you know between the metropole and the hinterlands right the the geographies of the caribbean you know the colonial geographies of the caribbean the post colonial geographies of the caribbean you know have always functioned as a you know as 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 a site of extraction um productivity you know for you know what we might think of as external economic interests um and and this this is what the plantations in Jamaica were about right and this is what the you know the bauxite mining in Jamaica is about today this is what you know the the development of call centers in in Montego Bay are about you know so the scammers recognize that Jamaica right sits in a a particular circuit and it's a circuit that does not engender uh you know or warrant according to this broader logic that it sits in investment mm-hmm. it's purely extractive and so you know what we see is that we 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 can see that in the other examples right even in north american context we could see right how say impoverished black neighborhoods right are are sites of extraction exploitation still right we can see through mass incarceration we can see through everyday you know police citation how how you know black spaces continue to be you know seen as sites of 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 value extraction and so this is what the scammers recognize right and so what they're saying to us is that you know that fact is is injurious and mm-hmm. recognizing it as injury is mm-hmm. demand 
And so they are mounting the scam as a reparative process, as a reparative response, you know, to the ongoing injury uh, of contemporary impoverishment. And I say contemporary very intentional because they are saying in this moment, we are being injured on con on, on contemporary, um, you know, on a contemporary basis of, of, of how we and our circumstances benefit, um, you know, North Atlantic economies. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. And I love how in the book, you and your collaborators invert the associations of the scam with criminality and show that it is embedded in the reparative logics you were just talking about. So what is at stake in articulating the scam through repair? And what kinds of post-colonial ethics does this form of reparation entail? Yeah, so, you know, what does it mean for there to be, you know, a criminal repair, right? And, and you know, again, when we identify what constitutes and qualifies as injury, Right. Then we begin to be able to more readily identify well, what can possibly constitute as repair. Right. I mean, we think of we think of these concepts as being, you know, pretty static. Uh, but the scam allows us and the scam has allowed me to fully understand them in, 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 in a much more open way. And so, you know, what that what that means is that um, the scam is a crime. Right. Repair is a crime because the injury of capitalism is a crime. I mean it's a, it's a, it's a simple formula, right? It is it is saying it is saying that the modes of production, right? The means by which again, you know, North America and western european economies can 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 flourish and have flourished is by you know the process that Walter Rodney called underdevelopment. And that has continued. And so what we know is that Repair will never come, right, in response to that kind of system because, you know, repair would mean, in truth, the complete abolition of that system, the dismantling of that system. And so, again, thinking very logically, the only thing that you can do, right, because, you know, the Western capitalism won't work against its own self-interest. So the only thing you can do is steal your repair. You know, the only thing you can do is scam your repair. But what this what the scammers do is they say, well listen, but you know, what we're doing is we're basically doing the same thing that you do. You know? And so what that means is of the ethics is that it 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 brings it brings post-colonial Caribbean subjects to a place of recognition that necessarily moves beyond questions of respectability or attachments to respectability. And perhaps even more controversially, it moves them past any attachment to the notion of sovereignty, because the scammers recognize that you know, you know. And I was in Jamaica doing field work at, at, at you know during Jamaica's fiftieth fiftieth anniversary of independence, and and the scamming you know scamming was at its height actually around the same time, and so what the scam in that context reveals is that you know the scammers recognize the limits of sovereignty. You know, the political project of being a sovereign nation yields very little dividend. And so for them, what you have ethically is this movement past what has for a very long time been the North Star of Caribbean political formation, right, which is this question of sovereignty. And, you know, I think what that did for me in terms of my analysis, right, is that it, it, 
it made me wonder, well, what does repair or reparation actually do to the long-serving ethics that get you to a point of reparation? Meaning even in North America, right, the driving, you know, and, and sovereignty in, in, in the Black American context, right, um, doesn't necessarily figure, you know, as centrally as it does in, in the Caribbean. Um, and, and I try to think about that a little bit in some, in some ongoing work. But, you know, but certainly, surely the question of freedom, right, is, is, is at the heart of, of Black studies, at the heart of the kind of Black political question uh, in, in North America. So the scammers made me realize that, well, if repair, reparation, right, can disrupt, you know, destabilize the very necessary, very central ethic of sovereignty in the Caribbean, then it means that reparations actually has a, a, a much bigger, you know, consequence, right, than simply responding to injury or compensating for injury or being some form of redress. Reparation, right, like emancipation, like independence is yet another ethical conjuncture that demands the complete reformulation of what it means to be a a black subject um and this is what i saw you know kind of you know bearing you know being borne out through some of the choices that the scammers made once they were once they got what they considered reparation meaning this is effectively a cash transfer right a cash infusion for them was was what they qualified as reparation and so you saw some of these, some of their practices and some of the decisions really helping to indicate what a post, you know, re- reparations um, subjectivity or black subjectivity might look like. But even without holding on to that as a precise example, right, it's still, it's still, I think, relatively reliably indicated that reparation is yet another moment in which, you know, we will be required to reconstitute and reconsider what it means to be black. Um, and that, to me, is I think the the major, major, major right consequence of of reparation, and that's you know to answer your question, um, or at least the framing of your question, that's what's at stake, right? Is that we have to reconcile with the fact, or reckon with the fact, actually, that reparations does 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 mean that we have to question, you know, the very up until this point relatively stable, um, certainly very comfortable notion of of what it means to be black. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And another striking thread in the book to me was how the law responds to this um, articulation of reparation and what it means to be injured. So what do the legal processes in the aftermath of the scam show us about the relationship between blackness, criminality and wealth? Right. Um. You know, so... You know, those relationships show up throughout the book and throughout mm-hmm. the history of the scam, right? Um, you know, what's interesting is that I was able to do, you know, so there's like Antipinky, right, uh, on one hand, <laughs> who kind of helps me helps me identify, you know, the subject of the scammer um, as an approachable, um, you know, figure. But there's also the legal context in Jamaica at the time when I began the research that allowed me to, I think, comfortably, you know, approach these guys and have them not be terribly worried about talking to me um although i'm jamaican and so forth and so you know that that did lend some some level of of access um you know but at the time and this is you know 2011 2012 you know the scam the scam wasn't illegal per se right because jamaica had no laws on the books that that would lead to any kind of long-term um 
you know, long-term jail time. You know what I mean? What they had was uh, a law that said, well, if you can't prove where you, you know, you, you got stuff from, then we could at least confiscate, you know, the state could confiscate, you know, those things or, you know, basically like an unlawful possession kind of thing. Um, but for the act of the scam itself, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be prosecuted. Uh, you know, so that changed, you know, that changed in 2013, you know, largely, you know, uh, by way of influence of the United States government, you know, because, you know, North Americans were, were largely the, the, the victims of, of much of the, the Jamaican lotto scam, um, you know, and so that, that changed. And, and so what you had was, you know, a, a kind of criminality or criminalization of the scam that brought it into the more um, recognizable circuit of Jamaican crime. So we're talking about drugs and guns and, and these kinds of things. But prior to that moment, the scam represented something of a, of a gray area. Um, you know, and so that really did, you know, from, you know, from an analytical standpoint, it, it, it allowed for some experimentation with, with some of the gray area, uh, you know, that constitutes criminality generally. And so I was thinking a lot with, you know, with Janet Reutemann's notions of sanctioned and unsanctioned practices, right? And how, you know, they don't necessarily qualify criminal practices, but, you know, the notion of sanctioning. Um, and unsanctioned, right? Something along, you know, the lines of what we might have, we might have also, you know, called the formal and informal economies. These kinds of things um, made me realize that we could also use actual crime as an analytic in this somewhat more capacious way. And so, what that meant was, you know, looking at crime in a more open way, opening it up to kind of see how it could present, how it could you know, function in different cases really did lend itself to thinking about racialization, right? How crime, you know, can be or how an activity can be sanctioned, can be legal, right? When enacted by a certain party, right? And then it moves into the domain of illegality, right? When practiced by another. Uh, you know, what that does is it dis- destabilizes, it disrupts the notion of criminality, right? And and I think that's not necessarily a terribly, rev- you know, revelatory understanding or, or realization but nevertheless when we think about how it's practiced on certain subjects it becomes really important to kind of note right um the kinds of things in the everyday way that some people get away with and others don't right and this is what the scam this is what the scam really you know really did did, did show me um you know and this has everything to do with wealth right meaning the capacity to have wealth you know, I reminded and I talk about in the book, you know, Fanon has that quote, you are white because you are rich, you are rich because you are white, you know. And, you know, for the scammers, they recognize that they were poor because they were black, right? Um, and so, again, if that disparity is the injury, you know, then then justice looks like correcting that specific disparity, you know. And so the question is, well, if my injury is rooted in a racial framing, right, then I have to actually think racially in order to correct it. And so that's why white targets became, you know, so important in in how and when they identified, you know, the scam as a reparative act. And so it opens up, you know, it basically it opens up these, you know, these frameworks to be able to kind of use in a much more malleable way to get at how, you know, some of these everyday ideations are put, put to practice, right? Um, and so one example, for for instance, is the is the collection of lead lists and the selling of lead lists. Um, you know, so lead lists for people listening, right, is just the 
you know, the repository of, of data, right? People's names, telephone numbers, addresses, and other, other, other information as well. Um, the scammers would either collect this on their own, they would solicit it, they would, you know, sell it, right? And, you know, the first scammer to be, to be extradited from Jamaica and then sentenced to, you know, 20 plus years, Sanjay Williams, right? He was a legalist broker. So Sanjay didn't actually call people to scam them. Sanjay never directly, right, sat on the phone with somebody and said, you know, send me money, right? What Sanjay did was Sanjay was a legalist broker. He sold people's data and he got 20 years for it. And so, you know, in one of the chapters, you know, of the book, I think it's a third chapter, I talk about this case, right? Um, Sanjay, Sanjay's case, because he's doing, he's doing, you know, something that is in fact a legal practice, right? This is called, you know, this is what telemarketers, you know, do. And, you know, and so the irony is that here we are, right? And I have T-Mobile as my service, so, right? So when a call comes in, like T-Mobile now literally puts on the screen of your, of your phone, scam likely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, scam likely. So is it illegal? Because <laughs> if it is a scam and we know that scams are illegal, then we shouldn't be getting these phone calls in the first place. But yet what we see every day on our mobile phones is the recognition of the scam and is the sanctioning, meaning the permissibility of, of the scam, right? And so if a number comes up or if, if a call comes in and it says scam likely and you pick up the phone, in principle, you are being scammed, right? But yet we see that as being a permitted practice, right? And so the point is that, you know, what Sanjay brings up, right, is, is, is that, you know, crime and wealth, right, are so much determined by, by race, right? And, you know, Sanjay was selling people's data. In fact, Sanjay was a, a, a middleman for a, comp- well, not a middleman, but he was an intermediary between a legitimate legal company that collected people's data. So Sanjay would buy, right, lead, leadless information, leadless data from a legitimate lead company. And he would then simply sell it on <laughs> to other people, right, who, you know, who would, who, who would use it to scam, right? And, you know, perhaps the crime there is that he knew what his, his customer base was intending to do with, with the information. Um, but when we're thinking about the chain of custody over, the, over those people's data, right? Like, at what point do you say, no, this is where the illegal practice begins? And so, you know, again, not trying to defend anything, but just trying to, you know, recognize the contradictions inherent in capitalism, right? Uh, you know, we sit here and, we, and we, we know that every time we ask for an Uber, right, we're exploiting that driver or that delivery person. We know that they are, in fact, working on the terms that aren't ideal, um, you know, but yet we still do it. Right. And so there's an ethical question there, right, that criminality, you know, helps us respond to. But the scam helps us to to realize is inherently racialized. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I want to follow up with a question about how repair becomes narrative in scammer's yard. So, you know, you make these wonderful points, but it's also embedded in how you organize the whole book. And you organize the narrative arc around what you call the move from sufferation to repair. Can you speak to your goals in narrating the scam in this way? 
Yeah. So, you know, you know, writing a book is an interesting thing, right? You want to, you know, you want to put forward an argument. You want to speak to literature that exists in support or in relationship to that argument, you know, but you also want to get at something that feels like an existing truth in the world, right? And I don't mean in terms of like universalized laws and these kinds of things, but meaning that you can actually speak to somebody's experience and you could put forward something that resonates that people who you talk about can recognize as being true to them and you know so as i mentioned earlier right i was in jamaica to try and understand this broader circumstance right um this question of suffering and what i saw with these other groups right meaning not the scammers but with the craft vendors and other people who i spoke to right was they're being entirely situated within suffering there was no there was no recourse you know except for what could be some kind of eschatological you know afterlife christian pentecostal like one day it'll be over you know one fine morning when my work is over i'll fly away home that kind of thing the scammers however were very different in that they had found a way through suffering right and so i needed to in order to make the the question of reparations meaningful both analytically but also you know to them you know you had to be able to trace right what was in fact being repaired right and where did some of these issues begin so suffering again being the ontology of of you know racialized impoverished caribbean life right had to be had to be foregrounded Right, and I did that with a kind of history of Jamaican political economy because what was clear for me, as based upon the you know the responses from my interlocutors, right, from the people that I worked with, right, you know, was that suffering was economic, right. It was not having the money, right, to pay for your kids' school fees. It was it was it was economic, right. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't bodily, you know what I mean? It wasn't necessarily spiritual because again, people were Christian and people were finding you know you know fulfillment in the church or wherever else, you know, um, but it was an economic circumstance. And you know scamming was also an economic practice. Right? And so the argument you know there is to say, well, here's a role of political economy, right? So you want to attend to that because you know what i was able to you know determine at least for myself was that jamaica's story was a political economic story right? it wasn't just a purely cultural story or something else that but political economy really is at the heart of, of the narrative um and and so i wanted to do that in a way that also helped to you know give account to the development of the rise of the lottery scam right and the response to you know uh to the circumstances through the scam itself. And so that was the point. So trying to write a book that that accomplished multiple things, you know, simultaneously. And um, you know, and that's 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 really it, right? It is about, you know, tracing a narrative arc from what we might think of as the origins of one circumstance or a group circumstance straight through to, you know, the point of analysis, right? The object of analysis, which is, you know, which is how are they responding to those circumstances? That was the, that was the intention. Hopefully, you know, hopefully it worked. 
in my humble opinion, it works uh. wonderfully. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> for, for what Thank it's you. worth. Um, I was also struck by your engagement with Patwa throughout the book. Right. And it made me wonder whether this is also a reparative discursive tactic mirroring your interlocutors. Can you speak to how you engage with Patwa and whether you see this engagement as method possibly? Yeah, so, you know, Patwa is the language that the people I work with speak, right? I mean, you know, Jamaican, English, whatever, you know, however you want to call it. And so, you know, when someone was, you know, someone was explaining something to me, you know, those are the words that they used. Um, and that's just a fact, you know? And I, and I think, you know, what it means to live with inside, you know what I mean? The language of Patwa is is really what this question is about, right? And it's and it's about again, you know, a mode of recognition. Now, you know, the the convenience here is that Patwa, you know, is in part uh, English based language, right? And so there are recognizable words, but there are often are you know grammatical differences, right? Um, so at the very least, an English reading audience could understand the words for the most part that are written and spoken in Patwa, right? Um, you know, if it's a reparative act, I mean, you know, again, repair, repair, repair is in response to injury, right? Um, and so, you know, there is, of course, a kind of history of speaking the king's and then queen's English in Jamaica, right? Patwa is not spoken, you know, uh, regularly across all classes in Jamaica, believe it or not. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is a form of not just resistance, right? But it is a form of just, you know, genuine native speech, right? And so I, I, I didn't take it as being anything more than that. But, but you know, if anything, the reparative kind of, you know, politics coming at the point where you're saying, well, yes, this speech should be recognized as, as what it is, right? Um, and yeah, sure, you know, in the actual publication process, there were different debates about, you know, how that should show up. Should I completely just translate, you know, should I put the patois, uh, you know, and then put an English translation in brackets, you know what I mean? And I think ultimately what I decided to do was I, I put, you know, in the beginning of a book, you know, uh, in the beginning of the book, I said, well, look, here are the patois terms. Here's what these words mean in English. You study this page. <laughs> And you can refer back to it if you need to as you go through and read the book, you know. And so, you know, I, I think it's important for that to just be to just be what it is. You know what I mean? Like it is it is it is Jamaican language. And if you want to know what these people feel and what they mean, then, you know, as a reader, you should do the necessary work of educating yourself you know, and, and, and you do the translated work yourself. And, and so, you know, if that's reparative, maybe, I don't know, right? But it is it is just what we should demand. You know, if we're taking people's experiences seriously, then we have to just do that, you know? Um, and we have to we have to take their, their experiences not just as, as, as serious, but also as legitimate. Um, and if something is legitimate, then it must be seen and recognized as being legible. Um, and so that's so that's so that's the kind of political orientation around the, the use of patwa, you know, in the book. It's just to just a, a pure acceptance of the legibility of these people's everyday discourse. I'm also curious about how you positioned yourself throughout your fieldwork. What does fieldwork with the scam look like as you push back against the criminalization of repair? Okay, so you know, so I mentioned earlier that during fieldwork, right, at least the majority of the fieldwork. 
um, you know, the crime was not technically, you know, criminal in a way that would have prohibited me uh, or rather prohibited, you know, the scammers from feeling comfortable talking to me. So there was some advantage to, you know, to, to the kind of legal situation on the ground at the time. Um, but of course, right, I was, you know, unknown to these guys, you know, and I was still, you know, a stranger at the very beginnings and not people who I knew. So, you know, I, I had to be very careful, right? I had to be very mindful. I had to be able to find a way to keep distance, right? While still hopefully, you know, gaining enough insight into what they did. You know, over time, of course, you know, I became a known entity to them. I I earned their trust and they became comfortable with me, right? If they, if they hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. Um, you know, but yeah, there was a real question, you know, for me, like, what does it mean, you know what I mean, to be in, you know, to be, uh, let me be careful here, um, you know, to not necessarily be witness, but to, and certainly not to be party to, but so at the very least, be cognizant of the fact that the people who you are speaking with, spending time with, are, you know, actively pursuing what can be seen, perhaps maybe not in Jamaica entirely, but elsewhere as 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 a criminal act. You know, and the truth is that this is this is a part of 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 life generally for a lot of 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 people, especially people who, you know, are living in circumstances where you know members of their community feel you know compelled to engage in criminal acts you know what does it mean to 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 be and we see the consequences what does it mean to be a family member right of someone who's involved in a gang right what does it mean right to be you know related to someone who you know is incarcerated was incarcerated like these are the kinds of intimacies that you know respectability tries to flatten and tries to have us ignore but these are actually part, you know, a part of, of, of a lot of people in the world's everyday life. I mean, these are the kinship networks, right? We have all kinds of people who we are, you know, close to. And so for me, I, I, I you know, relatively early on, I kind of stopped worrying about that, right? What I made sure that I didn't do was I made sure that I didn't go with them when they collected money, right? Um, I, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go pick up money. I was like, okay, I'll see you later, right? Um, because I knew that was different. Right. And and even if something wasn't necessarily illegal in the in the proper sense at that point, I knew that that was 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 certainly a line that, you know, would probably be, you know, you know, unwise to cross. Nevertheless, I was able to still, you know, go to places where I knew, you know, scammers were collecting money. Right. So they were, you know, scammers collected the majority of the money at places like Western Union, MoneyGram, etc. So even without going, you know, to those places with the with the crew, right, that I knew, I could still, you know, you could still identify a scammer, right, in the line. You could still see what was happening. Um, you know, now that leads to the bigger the bigger form of your question, right, which is like pushing back against the notion of criminalization, right. So I I I I answered part of what it was like to do field work in that, you know, in that in that in uh in that context, but you know the 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 scam wasn't a crime in the proper sense, not just because Jamaica didn't have the laws that made it formally criminal, but for the scammers, right? It was simply not criminal, right? In part, it was necessary, right? But in but more importantly, it was a response to what they saw as the criminal circumstances of their lived condition, meaning 
the fact that Amazon, you know, had a call center, right, has a call center, right, or there's a call center that represents Amazon, right, in in Jamaica and was paying, you know, its employees something that would amount effectively to a dollar US an hour, right? That's criminal. So that's how capitalism works. Okay, then capitalism works through crime. And so I'm disengaging as a scammer, right? Scammer's thinking, I'm disengaging in criminality uh, because I'm trying to do capitalism too, right? And so, you know, and so what that meant, you know, and kind of going back to an earlier answer where you open up, you open up the category of criminality, right? You, you make it more capacious, you make it more mobile, you make it more flexible in terms of how it can be, you know, recognized and how it can be assigned. And and so this this radical politics of unassigning criminality or actually intentionally assigning criminality to an act, right, as a radical declaration of a broader a broader circumstance, I thought to be quite you know quite powerful, um, and, you know, and that was part of the challenge in many ways in, in you know in writing the book is that you know I. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't trying to romanticize the scam. I wasn't trying to, you know, decriminalize it in any, any way because the scammers have said, "No, we are criminals because the system has made us criminals, and the system has made us criminals because we want to exist and to function and be productive within that system. And what we, from what we're from from our vantage point, right, the only way you can, you know, is to do crime." Right here in the U.S., you have, you know, these people in Washington trying to increase the, you know, the, the, the corporate tax bill to fifteen percent. Why? Because these corporations are what not paying taxes. They are finding legal means to avoid their responsibility to the state. Something where, if I were to do or to try and find some way to avoid, you know, taxation, I likely wouldn't get away with it. Um, you know, and so the fact that billionaires cannot pay their taxes you know, is inherently criminal. And so you see the scammers from their vantage point, from their position in, in Jamaica, recognizing that this is the way that Western capitalism works. Um, and so they are simply taking taking their cue, right, from, you know, from that, and they are, and they are principally just doing the same. And so, yeah, it's criminal, because if you're going to say that I'm doing crime, then you're doing crime too. Mm-hmm. Lastly, what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, even courses that you're working on right now? Yeah, so <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what's next for me? So I've just, finished, I've just finished my second book. It'll be out next year um, from Duke University Press uh, called Violent Utopia, which is you know, really a study of, of black life in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you know, following but also preceding the the 1921 uh race massacre in that city and you know in that project i'm asking you know some similar questions right uh, around you know black community constitution right about what what does you know the violence of 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 american development look like right and who pays the cost for it you know spoiler alert black people um and and what does reparations look like you know, within that context, right? One thing that I, that I do in the project is, you know, um, going back to an earlier, earlier uh, answer to one of your first questions is, you know, I try to respond to what I think as this under-considered question of sovereignty within the North American Black experience. And so I use the, I use the foundation of Black life in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, as, as you know, uh, founded in Indian territory um, prior to Oklahoma statehood as a way of thinking about the kind of sovereign formations of, of, of blackness 
uh, in, you know, in Oklahoma. And that shows up in places like Greenwood, which is known as the Black Wall Street, and really does set the foundation for these ethics of prosperity and self-determination. Uh, so, yeah, so that's so that's Violent Utopia. That would be out next. I think it's next fall um, from Duke. Um, you know, beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a couple about a couple other things, um, you know, thinking more about reparations. You know, this 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 year um, I joined the um, the California State Reparations Task Force. And so we're thinking about reparations uh, in, you know, what is for me a, a really meaningful way, because I'm trying to think about, you know, I think about repair a lot in the book, um, in Scammer's Yard, as a way of thinking about reparations. But here in this, you know, as a, as a part of this task force, we're thinking about actual reparations as from a policy standpoint. And, you know, what I can say is that even even you know at this early stage right i'm seeing some of the i'm seeing some of the the insights from jamaica and from scammer's yard um you know materializing meaning that there is a question when you are asking what reparations means um there is a question that demands that we do reflect upon the constitution of blackness and so we're seeing that here um, in California, because you know there's there's a bit of contention around well, who is eligible, right? Who is eligible for reparations in America, right? Uh, you know, is it you know folks who are descended from people who were enslaved in the United States, right? Um, or is eligibility open enough where you know black immigrants who might have arrived in the fifties or even in the twenties, right, might be eligible, right? Living in a with a century of 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 Jim Crow and post Jim Crow racism, do they qualify? And so you're seeing that there are there are these questions that still must be asked, or that reparations demand that we ask. And so I'm thinking about that more particularly from a you know from an intellectual standpoint, um, alongside alongside doing the work with the task force. Great, thanks for sharing this sure. new work with us, and we'll yeah. we'll be looking forward to this new book and the policy outcomes of this important work. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll see. You know, we'll see. It's it's you know, I, I think I think you know the 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 question of, of reparation, right, the question of repair, right, are are really the, the questions of our times. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully we can we can have, you know, more and more thinking around around what they mean and, and, and what they can accomplish. Exactly. Thank you very much, Dr. Lewis, for joining us and for your insights. Sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Aliza Rujan. This discussion of Scammer's Yard, The Crime of Black Repair in Jamaica, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.